0: I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers about their books. academic calling Fred Fordham. A haunting portrait of race and class, innocence and injustice, hypocrisy and heroism, tradition and transformation in the deep south of the 1930s, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird remains as important today as it was upon its initial publication in 1960 during the turbulent years of the civil rights movement. It is an enduring American classic, recently voted America's Most Loved Book in PBS's The Great American Read. Now, this most beloved and acclaimed novel is reborn as a graphic novel. Scout, Jem, Boo Radley, Atticus Finch, and the small town of Maycomb, Alabama, are all captured in vivid and moving illustrations by London-based artist Fred Fordham. We talked with Fred recently about his stunning adaptation of Harper Lee's seminal novel and beloved characters, and the pedagogical importance of reading graphic novels alongside their foundational texts. To Kill a Mockingbird, a graphic novel by Harper Lee and Fred Fordham is available now. So joining us on the phone today is Fred Fordham, who adapted and illustrated Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. So Fred, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Um, So to get started, I guess, I I think a natural question that everyone will have, especially fans of Harper Lee's novel is what, what is your experience with To Kill a
1: Mockingbird? I first read it in school, like a lot of people, I think. And then I, I read it again around university time. And I, I think I remembered it mostly as a kind of courtroom drama mm-hmm. about racial politics, I think probably partly because of the film. But reading it again more recently, I, I noticed how many different things it is, coming-of-age story and a kind of a sort of gothic southern gothic thing and the social commentary and as I later learned a kind of quite substantially a fictionalized autobiography as well and yeah and I read it a few more times while I was adapting it. I think my experience is probably fairly typical of quite a lot of people really. I, I, I read it at school and then, and then um, read it and got quite a lot more out of it when I was slightly older.
0: Listeners will probably notice that you are British. So, do you feel like your relative distance, both in terms of actual literal geography and space, do you feel like that helped you in your adaptation process at all?
1: I don't know, really. I don't, I don't really feel qualified to say. I, I, I'd be inclined to kind of guess that it, it didn't really either help or, or hinder. Um, but I, I suppose it's probably for others to judge in any case. Um, but I, I think I think I mean I, obviously the the associations many people have with the Killer a being a being its principal themes and its its kind of attachment to the to the sort of horrors and hypocrisies of a very specific time and place. Lo- those are all absolutely real, but the, the, there's clearly something about it that's also fairly universal. I mean, it's it's, it's been hugely popular all over the world, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like. For, you know, for whatever reason, um, people seem to be able to relate to it everywhere. Yeah. So I, I hope that I hope that it hasn't been a, a hindrance, certainly, but I don't know whether it's necessarily been a help.
0: How would you describe your artistic style with which you created um, your graphic novel adaptation, both in terms of the images and also the lettering style that you used?
1: You mean, how would I describe the kind of aesthetic of it or, or the process or a bit both? A bit of both, yeah. The visual style, the kind of aesthetic of it, I guess is sort of semi realistic. And um, I'm, it's not really a choice. I, I, my, my background's in traditional portrait painting, and, and I didn't really discover comics until pretty late. Not, I, I, I didn't, not really until I read Persepolis at university, actually, which is kind of, I imagine, quite unusual. Um, and so I never really learned the the kind of craft of cartooning, which is actually, I increasingly realize, is a very specific skill, and it's quite an important skill uh, in sequential art, in, in comics and graphic novels and things, because there's this strange kind of, the, the, there's a few pitfalls with realism in, in this medium, I think, and one of them is this, this notion called the, the uncanny valley. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I wasn't until pretty recently, but, it's like if you if you draw in a fairly realistic way and you get you make even the slightest error, it looks really eerie and quite often looks significantly more wrong than any cartoon intuitively would. Um, so there's there's this kind of it's a pretty high stakes game drawing this this kind of way. But as I say, I haven't really had a choice because it's just it's the only style that comes naturally to me. And I think my own interest is primarily in storytelling. Anyway, and probably always has been, even when I was painting. So um, that's my focus: is how to how to pace it, and how to, um, and also, of course, how, you know, in the case of a period story like this, how to make it look as as much like the time and the place as possible. Um, and as, as far as the the lettering goes, that actually <laughs> that font was originally used as a I think at the beginning it was just a sort of placeholder, but people uh, kept saying how. They liked it actually, and it went nicely with the with the artwork. So we left it in the end. That was that was something which um, was there from the from the kind of planning stages. Oh. Um, yeah, the kind of first stage of this was just going through and highlighting things in the in the novel, and then they do this long plan, which is basically just it's everything that I think needs to be that's essential done without pictures more or less so it's just panel borders and text and maybe very brief descriptions of how I think what I think things are going to look like and then after that I do a, a storyboard and the, each stage of this is being edited down because it's you know it's, it's a huge amount of text which has to by necessity has to be massively shortened and then from there I then basically once the storyboard the storyboard's fairly detailed and that's sort of I can be kind of checked off by everyone who's who's going to have a say in it. And then for about a year, I just get go into complete hibernation of just drawing the whole thing, and, and then it's done. And the lettering, as I say, just remained from the beginning, as it turned out, so there wasn't any big decision with that, really.
0: Did you have a favourite part when you went back through to reread Harper Lee's novel? Did you have a favourite part that you knew you absolutely wanted to make sure stayed in your adaptation?
1: Not exactly, it was more, actually, there, there were just, it was looking for places where I thought things didn't absolutely need to be there, because there's so many things that are, there's so many things that are fantastic for different, completely different kinds of reasons. I mean, going back to that thing about the book being a, a strange medley of different things and perhaps mm-hmm. just having something to do with its popularity. Uh, and and wide appeal you have a sequence like the the kind of sneaking into the radley place mm-hmm. which yeah. is just it, it just reads like a you know it's like a kind of adventure story almost that bit you know it's just yeah. like a it's it's it's, it's you, you draw you you paste that and draw that in much the same way as you do almost like a i don't know like a Tintin book. <laughs> okay. yeah uh And then of course you've got these excruciating scenes in the courthouse and Mm -hmm. um so there's so many there's so many things which for different reasons are are extremely interesting and and challenging to to come to get to grips with the thing that the thing that i did do uh, as far as editing goes obviously apart from just editing down text and, and converting um scenes of visual description into drawings was i tried to in places where i thought that a a particular theme had been already explored elsewhere i i thought that certain places you know that that didn't need to happen uh, again that it wasn't absolutely necessary that would happen again so so so, you know like the the kids one of the principal themes being the kind of the learned behaviors of, of prejudice and hypocrisy and and the kids learning to in other people's shoes, is mm-hmm. that, um, constantly impressing upon them. Um, so you know that, that those themes come up in various places, and and um, as long as as long as all the key themes and all the key things that I think that I was trying to say are in there. Um, that that was that that was the essential thing really. Sorry that's a very long answer to a very simple question.
0: <laughs> that's okay. One of the really striking things for me about reading your your adaptation is actually the very first page, which I I didn't it's it's going to sound silly maybe, but um I didn't Really realize the importance of the image of the first page until I got um, a bit more than halfway through. So there is, of course, the iconic opening sentences. Uh, when he was nearly thirteen, my brother Jem got his arm badly broken at the elbow. When it healed and Jem's fears of never being able to play football were assuaged, he seldom he was seldom self conscious about his injury. So the image that you that you have to open the graphic novel, we're looking out sort of at. At a, at a lot but we are behind a chain link fence and when you get to Tom Robinson's death scene you see the exact same image and for me it was super it was a super poignant moment for me sort of getting getting to that set of panels um, where you drew Tom, Tom Robinson's death um, and then thinking wait a second I've, I've seen this before um, and going back to the, to the very first page. Um, so one of the things that this made me think about um, is, is I guess initially like wh- why that initial image at first because there could have been so many other choices and it's a, it's a very deliberate choice it seems to me to sort of straight out of the gate even if, you're, if, if your reader is unaware um, to talk about perhaps what is To Kill a Mockingbird's most central theme of race and racial prejudice so why was that important to you as the artist and adapter to sort of choose the starting image that you did?
1: Well, uh, thanks first of all, I'm glad it, I'm glad it uh, sort of landed, I, I did actually, I I kind of went back and forth on that image a bit because the, the risk with with imagery like, a you know, of fences or things like that, is that there's, a, there's a potential for it to seem a little bit on the nose, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, but i thought that i mean like for me there's a there's a there's a kind of feeling running through the novel of being trapped mm-hmm. uh and and enclosed and obviously the most obvious and, and kind of brutal uh aspect of that is the way that african americans after emancipation were basically imprisoned in this kind of horrifyingly disingenuous system for the next century mm-hmm. um and then you know where, where you know where any white person more or less regardless of how malicious or bad their reputation basically had the power to bring down the full force of the law on any african-american on a whim Mm -hmm. so that that's obviously that's the most that was the most kind of significant case and then there's 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 boo who's who's incarcerated in his house yeah uh and then there's and then more trivially you know everyone is trapped to some extent by the expectations and norms of this decaying social system so the kids don't understand the hypocrisies and the prejudices of the adults, but they're powerless to intervene. And Atticus is powerless to uphold justice. And Scout feels powerless to escape the the gender expectations and and so on. So, yeah, fences seem like an apt if if potentially slightly sledgehammer pieces of imagery
0: to, to open with yeah no i i really loved it 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 really made me belatedly i guess i mean when i first opened the book and saw it i was like okay this is an interesting choice and then i was trying to remember sort of the descriptive elements from from the word i'm like was there a fence on this like but it was really it was really a striking it really is a striking striking image so I mean, whether whether you whether you're a bit belated like me in, in terms of getting it, um, I think it was really just a super powerful way to to open the book. Thank you. And something else I'm wondering about um, too is the the language, because of course the text is is Harper Lee's own text, and mm-hmm. there was no decision to sort of amend or abbreviate language that she was very deliberate in using. Was that a difficult decision for you?
1: This is in terms of kind of the free use of horrible racial slurs by yeah. the by the the white characters. Yeah, and well, there's a sort of there's a there's a kind of a practical and a and a I don't know like a kind of ethical component to this sort of uh, decision. I think. I mean, first of all, like it, as you say, it's 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 Harper Lee's, original text and mm-hmm. i think that there are books uh that are just so kind of excruciatingly of their time and that you know that to to just adapt them straight would just seem kind of insensitive i just i don't think this is a novel like that at all um anyway so to go back to this thing of the, the kind of the, the practical side and then the ethical side so so first of all you you just have to kind of ask we, does does the way the book is written accurately portray the speech patterns of whites in 90 days alabama mm-hmm. and are these speech patterns integral to the subject of the novel yeah and i think it, i think in both cases it, the answer is pretty uncontroversially yes yeah so then so i mean, I mean and, and and it's even addressed right atticus um chastises scout for her language
0: mm-hmm.
1: so 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 removing or abbreviating that would be practically difficult, but then would it be kind of ethically right to do so in the sense that regardless of history, you know, um, should should certain words be cut or changed because they're just so abhorrent now? And I think here I would just argue that particularly bearing in mind that Lee was writing largely an account of her own life. Mm to do so would be to kind of sanitize the ugliness of the time, you know, and 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 even to do a kind of disservice to those who lived through it and were on the receiving end of it. Um, you know, Lee was so, she, you know, she was writing about the time and the place that she knew, and yeah. um, while you know that word is particularly and and uniquely abhorrent, the book gives a depiction of a real and uniquely ugly period of hypocrisy, you know, and mm. and with this. Perpetual looming threat of deadly violence forever behind this 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 kind of veneer of, of you know tea and Charlotte and manners and hospitality and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I so I, you know I I just I think that practically it would have been very difficult for the novel to be the same thing if you if you'd made those kinds of changes.
0: Yeah, and it's I mean I remember reading it. When I was in school, and being you know jarred at at the language. and then yeah. it's it's been a while since since I've read it. And I have to say that it was it was jarring to to read it to read it in the adaptation. but I agree that it absolutely makes sense because it it's sort of and kind of like your you know your opening answer to the first question about you know your experience reading Harper Lee, you get. You get more out of it. You get different things out of it. Sort of as as your brain grows and changes, and as you become, you know, more of a person circulating in the world. Um, but it really was striking to me to think about, you know, in, encountering it and also thinking about how it comes off the page to us now in the in the particular moment that all of us seem to seem to be in. One thing that I'm curious about maybe we can tag team and disabuse a few people notions of so some people might say oh well since there's a graphic novel version of to kill a mockingbird you can just read that because it's easier right (laughs) which is not exactly true um and you have you have said before in earlier interviews that you think that um, your adaptation should be read alongside of Harper Lee's novel itself, which I totally, totally agree with. So, why do you think the two texts should be read side by side and not one in place of the other?
1: I certainly take the view that the graphic novel doesn't. I mean, it, it can't it can't be viewed as a kind of substitute, right? Because it's a different it's a different medium, mm-hmm. you know. And I think I think one of the things that I can't remember who it was who said this. I think it might have been Neil Gaiman, but I, I'm not sure. Said that the, the problem with comics, or one of the many problems with comics and graphic novels, as a, is, a me- is that it's a medium that's been mistaken for a genre. So the people people have such a strong. I think still, despite the fact that we keep hearing that you know graphic novels are, are have integrity now and and so on, there's still there's still a, I think quite a strong feeling among many people in the U.S. and the U.K. particularly that it's it's still very associated with a kind of niche subculture and and a particular kind of genre fiction and stuff like that. So I think people think that like if you do a graphic novel of something it's kind of it's that thing light um and so you might think well i mean suppose this i mean sorry i'm just kind of thinking loud here but supposing you had supposing you had to do it you had to you had to do to kill a mockingbird at school and uh, like okay well if you can kind of get get all the get all the essentials by just reading a comic. Um, well, you know, you've saved yourself a huge number of words which would have taken a lot of time to, you know, and and therefore, you know, this is this is just a shortcut basically to, to kind of doing what you need to do. That is a complete um, mistake because like film, like theatre, like anything else, it's it is just another medium and that you can tell any kind of story in it. And you can there are th- I mean there are there are unique things about graphic novels and, and comics that other media can't do. And I, I think without meaning to go down too much of a rabbit hole here, like part of this is to do with the fact that that comics seems to be the only medium where space and time are, are, are kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you as you move through space on the page, you're actually moving through time uh, within the story mm-hmm. if you see what I mean yeah. so you have this you have this kind of uh, there is this there is this interesting relationship that the author of graphic novel has with the reader where um, you're kind of both deciding what pace the story goes at in a way that obviously in film you're not where you know the director just decides how long you look at something all of this is just is just a rambly way of saying that they are they are different media so it's it's not it's not a I don't Personally, view it as like an easy version of the novel. Yeah, um, but I think even if you, uh, but I think if you did, you'd just you'd you'd be doing yourself a massive disservice not to read the novel because well, you know there's things that prose can do that graphic novels can't do. You know.
0: Yeah, and I think too, like with what you said with regard to, to sort of narrative pacing and, and time, you also get to see the characters in a different way. Um, then you did of course you know everyone I think everyone thinks that Gregory Peck is Atticus Finch, right That's you know sort of been decided for time immemorial but there but there are things about Atticus's character that I mean we know because it's sort of common cultural currency like his his uprightness That was the thing that that I have been talking about since looking at your adaptation. you know you think of Atticus Finch as a very upright socially conscious man and, and when I went back through your, your adaptation I, the panels where Atticus was pictured I couldn't help but notice sort of how straight-backed he was most of the time like he's, he's not really a man who slumps but that's but that's another way of I think getting across character traits too is taking a look at how he looks in the in the different panels
1: that's true too. Yeah. 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 So yeah, there there are definitely you know there, there are unique elements to both. The potential to, as I say, to go down all kinds of rabbit holes about the the unique significance and 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 pitfalls, frankly, of comics as a medium uh, is is tempting, but I don't think we, should, <laughs> I think we should go too far down there. But um, but yeah, the key thing is just that they they are not. Uh, it's not like one is a is a is just a simplified version of the other you know uh, prose really does have uh, unique qualities and similarly graphic novels do
0: So I just have one more question for you and it's a question we ask all of the guests on our podcast so since this is primarily geared to teachers and their students who was your favorite
1: teacher? Can I give you two?
0: Absolutely
1: Well I can remember the, the teacher that I did To Kill a Walking Bird with, and that was Mr. McVeigh, I'm pretty sure, and he was—he taught American literature in my primary, in my secondary school. Mm-hmm. We, did, we did, I think, all the kind of archetypal school books with him that was um, of Mice and Men, and uh, I don't know, do you do, you do, do, you do inspector in calls in America?
0: I don't think, think, so. think so. I don't think so. We definitely okay. do of Mice and Men.
1: Yeah, um, and yeah, one or two others, uh, and then uh, and uh, another teacher that was this is both English teachers by the way, but another teacher that was very inspiring was uh, Miss Kerr who taught me if somehow I managed to teach a bunch of uh, incredibly restless sixteen and seventeen year olds to appreciate Paradise Lost, which is quite something.
0: There is that is quite something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Fred, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.